the challenge was was there were pieces and parts of that that I wanted people to understand the 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 nature of working with these birds and also understanding um, the unique relationship uh, where there's an excitement there's a passion that occurs that uh, when a bird flies to somebody's glove. Hey everyone, thanks again so much as always for joining us for another week of the Falconry Told podcast brought to you in part by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. I know it's been a while since we've done these consistently and it's been pretty sporadic, so let's just jump right in. Here we go. All right, three, two, and one. I think I remember how to do these. I think I do, but it's it's been such a long time. I think April was the last one of these I did, and, and I apologize to all of our wonderful listeners for you know having such a a long gap in between, um, well, life, I guess, <laughs> with this podcast. But uh, it's been an interesting couple months, and I really appreciate you all uh, bearing with us during these times. It's been really hard trying to coordinate anything whatsoever with people um, to, to record any of these at all, let alone just live normal life um, in the wonderful COVID era that we're living in right now. But anyway, um, I'm John Munyer, and I appreciate you all um, joining us again for another episode of the Falconry Told podcast. And uh, I'm located in Cleveland right now. I'm, I'm currently working on a on an assignment around the Cleveland area, and uh, I managed to link up with some Ohio Falconers kind of close to here, um, one being uh, Joe Dorian, who was nice enough to make the wonderful two-hour <laughs> trek from uh, from Columbus Um you know, all the way up to join me today and uh, in my wonderfully small shoebox Airbnb just to set the setting for you all since you can't see us obviously uh yeah we're we're in a, a small corner like a uh, scolded children basically of my Airbnb with uh audio equipment set up and we're uh we're raring to go so wait, wait we're doing a podcast I thought I was just up here to get free Cavs tickets oh well huh. Being as I hate uh, pro basketball, you are you are sorely misinformed in SOL, my friend. Oh, man. <laughs> so how's it going, man? Good. It's do- going well. Good. Going well. Good. Good. How's uh, I mean, how's life been been treating you in this in this time? You know, it's been difficult because uh, you know it's one of those things where uh, life's upside down with mm-hmm. uh, with kids and you know uh, being kind of a. Uh, independent business person, you know, it's, it's difficult because, you know, the business that we run is very, very tied to people kind of coming out and wanting to kind of experience, uh, you know, flying birds. So sure, sure. Well, and in any kind of public situation, if people are scared to go out and do things or just, or don't want to go out and do things and intermingle with people right now, I mean, I guess it's understandable, but at the same time, it's a bummer for any business right now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of those things where you kind of look at it and, you know, I, uh, I left the corporate world back in 2016 and, you know, it's times like this where you kind of look at that and go, Hey, you know, it might be nice to kind of have that security. Mm -hmm. Uh, but even the corporations are, you know, laying people off right and left. So, yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) the fact that you're sitting here talking to me right now is is proof that nobody's jobs are safe no i mean i I, if 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 respiratory therapists and nurse and nurses can be laid off during a you know quote-unquote respiratory pandemic yeah then uh any of those things you know any of those things possible yeah so 
Yeah, I my situation was was weird because I wasn't necessarily laid off, but I also wasn't uh, you know kind of guaranteed my job either. Mm-hmm. It's such it's been such a weird time. So we're definitely not going to uh you know everybody's coveted out by this yeah. point in time. Uh, me especially. Um, honestly, if I never hear the word COVID again, it would be too soon. Uh, so we're definitely not going to burden everybody with any more details of you know that kind of stuff. But uh, how have you managed to improvise and continue to grow? You know what you're doing, sure, and uh, and just cope right now. I mean, should I uh, start by introducing a little bit the idea of what we do? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Go ahead and just you know give a little background. So so people that aren't familiar with you. Uh, you know, just kind of explain a little bit what, what you've been doing and sure. and how you got into everything. So, so um, you know, my big boy day job for, for 25 years was working in large corporations and leadership development, kind of executive coaching, basically adult ed. And um, in 2013, we started to put t- together the idea of creating a, a falconry school that was very different than uh, the schools that you'd find at a lot of the resorts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, focusing on teaching um, the public, you know, about the sport of falconry, about the ethical practice of falconry, not necessarily trying to teach people how to become falconers, right? but really uh, kind of introducing people to, you know, uh, the idea of relationship between falconer and the birds that they work with in a different way. So, uh, you know, getting people hands on with a bird of prey um, is something that is, in my mind, akin to helping them understand what we do in a deeper way. And trying to create a broader uh, audience of support for what we do. Sure. Um, and so, you know, we started the school, uh, opened in 2014. Uh, we've had good growth over the past number of years. Um, and, you know, for us, just like every other, you know, rehab organization, or we don't do rehab, but, you know, the closest thing people oftentimes think of when they hear, you know, a falconry school uh, is Raptor Rehabbers. And we have close relationships with seven different Raptor Rehab organizations here in Ohio. Uh, we try to support them with, you know, monetary and food donations. Um, and so pretty much every Raptor-based organization over the past, you know, six months has almost lost every single one of their bookings, uh, you know, because a lot of what we do is similar to them. And we do libraries and, you know, uh, nursing homes, which I was probably going to, you know, cancel those myself. Um, <laughs> libraries, nursing homes, uh, summer camps, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when the, all those disappeared, you know, we still had bookings on the weekends uh, where people come into our public classes. But, you know, that's another revenue stream that was important, especially since we give back a lot to um, uh, the Raptor Rehab organizations that we work with, as well as we have three different locations in the state. And we give back a, a, a major portion, I would say, of what we make uh, to support those organizations. So we, we operate out of two different summer camps and out of an Isaac Walton League uh, location up here near Cleveland. And so, you know, we give a, a healthy percentage back to them to help, you know, um, the work that they're doing, whether it's in conservation or, you know, working with kids that they bring in from more impoverished areas. We also do a lot of work where we go in and we'll, um, uh, we give them a percentage of what we make while we're on their site. Plus, we always do three to five uh, free days of programming for them. So, um, but a lot of the other summer camps that we do where we come in and work with kids, um, you know, that helps to sustain a lot of the um, uh, donations that we make to Raptor rehab organizations here in Ohio. And so, you know, when you lose all that, you know, you've got a, a major 
portion of your of your revenue, you know, kind of going out the door. So we sat down and, um, you know, I always say I worked in HR, I'm not necessarily, I'm business minded, but I was never a business person until I started my own company. <laughs> and so uh, one of those things that we looked at was how do we, you know, turn on a dime and try to kind of not reinvent the wheel, but basically identify a way that we can still try to deliver. So we came up with the idea of something that we called Hawk House Calls, where we actually, instead of going out to the summer camp, we go out to people's front yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was funny because I came up with two, two names, uh, Raptor Roadshow and Hawk House Calls. And I have three or four different people that work with me or for me. And so I asked all of them, you know, which do you like best? And I love the idea of Raptor Roadshow. We're going to actually use that as one of our, our um, drop downs. Uh, but everybody said they liked uh, Hawk House Calls better, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, so outvoted. But, um, you know, so the idea is, is go out to people's front yards and bring birds out to them um, and keep it affordable. Um, and so we've also worked with some of our Raptor rehab partners to kind of, uh, encourage them to do the same thing because, you know, once again, they lost some of their major funding. One, one actual organization we worked with, uh, their major, um, fundraising dinner, which is about 60% of all their funding, you know, got canceled because of, uh, because of the situation where we're at right now. So, yeah. um, it's kind of tough. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I, you know, res- everything from restaurants to bars to, Businesses like yours, Everybody. yeah, have had, I mean, just a huge amount of, of suffering as far as losses yep. and everything. This goes without saying, but uh, but everyone has had to improvise to some yep. degree. Um, so it's well, that's interesting. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's always interesting for me during these times, especially hearing how businesses of all varieties have been making it, and obviously not all of them are going to make it. So it's it's a bummer, but. I'm glad that you've been able to to maintain and continue on. And uh, what got you in, into just the whole idea of doing anything with birds? Sure. Period. I think I can uh, trace it back to um, pretty much uh, a book mm-hmm. that a lot of falconers today, you know, uh, uh, I think their spouses sometimes wish they the teachers had never read My Side of the Mountain to them. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it was in uh, fifth grade they read that book to us, and for. You know, two years after that, I used to walk around with a little leather glove and a whistle just in case I could, you know, <laughs> see somebody's uh, escaped falconry bird. I was going to call it down. And I already had the area in the garage cleared out. It was uh, it was the area that was supposed to be for the pony that never showed up at Christmas. <laughs> so it was all ready for a bird of prey. So, yeah. yeah so, um, you know, uh, like most of us, you know, you have that 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 juvenile, you know, fascination with the sport and then life gets in the way. And, you know, I graduated, uh, uh, God, was it 2003, 2004 with my master's in education from Ohio state. And, you know, somebody gave me a gift card and I was sitting there at work at lunch one day, you know, going, okay, what is it I used to be interested in? And, you know, bought, uh, North American falconry and hunting hawks and, you know, came in and we went on vacation pretty much the day after that. And I never left the hotel. Uh, you know, I, I just read it <laughs> cover to cover and that was it. So that was, that was what really, you know, stoked the fire, if you will. Interesting. And how many years ago did you say that was? Uh, this is my, almost my 17th year in the sport. So, okay. um, so yeah, it was, uh, uh, this be 16th actually. So, uh, 2004. Okay. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was, uh, <laughs> I was 2004. I was right in the middle of respiratory school at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I'd been. That was about three years post when I graduated high school. Yeah, yeah. That's it's kind of crazy to think back and 
and timelines and just yep. remember exactly how old you really are. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's one of those things that I think a, a lot of times, the longer time goes on, you know, I'll look at a lot of people that um, I, I, and maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but I look at how um, long that they've been, you know, practicing the sport. And, you know, if they're Facebook friends or whatever, and I'll, I'll swear I remember them, you know, on, on like the Apprentice Falconry Forum, you know, No Schroeder's Falconry Forum that he had back in, you know, 2005, 2006, which was, you know, kind of one of the predecessors of NAFX, which is now, you know, all the Facebook, you know, uh, uh, kind of forums and stuff. But it, you look at it, and you go, I could swear, you know, you've been doing this for longer. And people yeah. haven't, which is a beautiful part about the sport is people can get in and they can specialize, mm-hmm. you know, and you'll find that, um, you know, I always tell people in the classes, you know, pay, pay no mind to the factor that we list the factor that somebody's a master or not, because, you know, a master just is a designation by the government. You've been doing it for seven years. Right. Really, you can find, um, you know, I was the apprentice director here in Ohio for five years, and I would find, you know, apprentices that would come in that in some cases had much better skill sets yeah. than people that had been practicing for years. Sure. So yeah, um, you run into that a lot. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it all just depends on how much time, you know, you put into it. And, uh, you know, there's some people that are technically at a master level that haven't hardly even put in near as yeah. much of the time as some, some apprentices. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, it's just, it's just reality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, no, that's cool. Uh, I mean, what, what did you fly whenever you first started and, and what was, I mean, what kind of is, uh, has been your, your path as far yeah. as, uh, you know, some people initially, I mean, I, there's guys that I know for that matter that, haven't even ever flown a red tail yeah you know, it's, See, it's, which it's, is interesting it's, it's weird yeah because i think a lot of it is where you're at and um you know i always tell i would tell new apprentices and then i've always you know whenever we have um you know people that i've sponsored you know i always talk about how the most important aspect of falconry is balance mm-hmm. and this idea of making sure that you know you fly a bird for what you have the prey for sure because yeah. it does uh best for your success as well as the bird success so here in ohio it's largely you know Harris Hawks, Red Tails, um, or Goss Hawks. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, start out with a Red Tail. I've always had a Red Tail in, in one of my Mews. Um, I started back in the old days where a general could have two birds. So, you know, if you wanted to fly a cast of Harris's, which, uh, you know, I flew uh, Harris's over Dachshunds for, you know, eight to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to have a cast of Harris's and a Red Tail for squirrels. But uh, back then you had to kind of make your decisions. So, you know, you'd fly a Harris with your friends and who had a Harris's and then you'd fly a Red Tail. Um, never really got into flying exhibitors just because I had two young kids and, you know, full-time job. And, you know, with a Red Tail or Harris's, I could have them in the car. I kind of rearranged my schedule so that I was able to always have a, you know, go into work early, work through lunch and have um, meetings at one of the various locations around the city where I had fields. Mm-hmm. And so I could leave at three o'clock and, you know, change in the restroom and be in the field right next to the facility, you know, pretty quickly. Sure. So, um, so mainly red tails and Harris's. And then we've, you know, with the school, we have quite a few Falcons that we lure fly. So, um, but I'm, I'm excited because here in Ohio, you've got a lot of, um, you know, first and second year generals that are starting to take on, uh, occipiters. We've got, I think three, uh, folks that have largely been flying red tails that are imprinting, you know, goshawks and they're, you know, normally you would get nervous about that unless they have a really good mentor. And, you know, all three of them actually have been, um, you know, connecting with and working with, you know, one of our best goshawkers in the state, which is a guy named Gil Gross up in uh, Northeastern part of the state. He's, uh, 
He's he's actually my grand sponsor. So uh, <laughs> not that I'm saying I have to put that in there, but Gil's probably one of the best exhibitor people that I know. Cool, cool. So, yeah, they're definitely not for for beginners. Yeah, you know? I mean, you really need some guidance with them because it's it's uh it's hard to make a good one and easy to mess one up. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. really is. I mean, it's and yeah, I, I guess. I, I've talked about this before in other episodes, but I, I was never really super bitten hard by the exhibitor bug like some guys get. And I think it's just because I've just been so overexposed to yeah. them from the beginning because, you know, Mark and other buddies yep. of mine, you know, f- have flown them pretty religiously, you know, since, well, I've, I've been exposed to the sport. So actually the, the first, like the, the first kill that I ever quote unquote, got with the with the bird of prey was whenever i was just kind of shadowing in the field that yeah. that first that first season that i was just tagging along and uh mark let me fly dixie and you know she wouldn't got one it was, it was, it was like my third second or third time out nice. in the field ever you know so uh yeah like i said it was it was one of those things where i just never <laughs> i i i've i've just been exposed to them constantly so some guys I mean, I've run into guys that never even seen a goshawk fly yeah. before, and um, that's kind of like how um, you know we are in our area with 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 bigger long wings, you know, because not very many people fly yep. them, and understandably so. And I mean, I've tried to fly a couple myself, and and you know, it's 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 just different, you know. So I mean, it, it's with the aggressive nature and with the the skittish nature of exhibitors, they're 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 not an easy bird. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Indiana obviously has, uh, uh, as you were saying, I mean, Ohio, we only really had two people that successfully flew, you know, goshawks here. Mm-hmm. Nobody that I knew of that really uh, on a consistent basis flew um, Cooper's hawks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've known a couple of folks that have uh, tried them, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not like they're racking up the game totals, you yeah. know, huge numbers at least. Uh, one of my apprentices, uh, Brian, actually flew one successfully for a couple of years, but um, and one of my apprentices now, Stephanie uh, Stuckwish, is going to be. Uh, we're going to trap her one here this fall, so she can. Uh, we have a farm here in Columbus or down in Columbus that uh, has a lot of pigeons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to try to, you know, be able to get some fun with that. But um, you know, Indiana has obviously, uh, 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 I think, a lot more folks who are flying goshawks than here in Ohio. Yeah, I, and and fortunately, um, around the Kentucky area that kind of borders, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and our area in Southern Indiana, you know, we have a pretty decent amount of cottontails yeah. and, uh, and that's really, I mean, not just cottontails, but more open fields yep. and, and ditch lines and stuff that, uh, that's, that's more conducive to a goshawk hunt. And I mean, without that, you're, you're kind of um <laughs> it's 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 a lot tougher it's yeah a lot tougher well and uh you know most of the guys that are flying um they're trying to imprint goshawks here they're in the northeastern part of the state so they're going to be open to flying those birds on squirrels mm-hmm. i'm sure and and you know that in and of itself has been a, a point of contention for a lot of the older you know uh goshawkers you know it's almost like you know how dare you fly them on uh on squirrels but um there's a a guy a friend of mine um who used to when he, i remember when he first brought his first red tail to columbus from maine a guy named tom gagney uh tom great falconer um and he had uh uh the audaciousness to fly a uh imprint uh wild is uh uh female goshawk on squirrels and he did a great job of it and you know 
up to that point, I had been somewhat skeptical until I saw him fly his bird and to watch that bird fly and to see how it hunted squirrels. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I still won't necessarily, if I ever fly goshawk, you know, probably pursue squirrels. That's probably why I won't fly goshawk because we don't have anything but squirrels so much in here in the central part of the state. But, um, you know, uh, he made me a believer that if it's done right, it's it can be done safely, as safe as can be. Well, and I mean... Let's just be honest. I mean, anything a bird thinks it yeah. can catch and eat in the wild, it's going to go. I mean, it's a, a raptor isn't going to look at a squirrel and think, oh, that's a squirrel. Yeah. I'm not going to go after it because it might bite my toes yeah. off or something. You say I, yum. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, if they think they can, well, and, and granted, they're nowhere near as big of prey as obviously what we have here. Yeah. But, I mean, like ground squirrels and and stuff out west is what they naturally prey on anyway so i mean and they're hunting i mean to be quite honest in maine and you know the northern reaches the northern goshawks eating a lot of squirrels too so sure sure um yeah i've just i've the only thing that i've heard in particular from from guys that have started i think we had this conversation briefly before um but it's it's harder to get goshawks on on squirrels Mm, according to some guys just because they don't have that natural tendency to want to you know sometimes look Look up up. and and want to follow through through trees and stuff it's just you know they they just don't have the same at times especially if they're they're imprinted or or whatnot from what i've heard well a lot of the belief is is that you know the natural way to fly goshawk is off the glove Mm -hmm. and that's one thing that was interesting about tom was uh he could fly his bird off the glove but he could also fly it out of the tree it Mm -hmm. would follow him so you know that was that was kind of interesting that he had that um that uh approach to it you know um but yeah so i mean uh it'll be interesting to see i'm I'm quite excited to see what stephanie does with her cooper's hawk because she's she's one of those uh apprentices that is um uh you know she has a way with birds and plus she's a driven hunter and that's another thing that you know I, i think a lot of people think that when we do these falconry school programs that we're just you know talking about the beauty of the birds you know one thing that we haven't been the apprentice director you know we always talk about the importance of this is a hunting sport um because you know you you'd be surprised uh maybe you wouldn't uh and it's not a huge number but we still get uh people that come through who you know want to be uh falconers just so they can have a cool bird in the backyard want to be pet keepers yeah and that's you know i produced one of those uh (laughs) unintentionally Mm -hmm. uh and swore that i would never do that again um and you know the issue is is um you know you you have to make sure that people that come into the sport realize that it is a hunting sport because right. uh, we have to protect that. We have a heritage. And you and I were just talking before we got started here about the importance of understanding the history of, of the sport. Uh, not just when we say history, the factor, you know, of where it came from, but even more importantly, like our history here, you know, the, the people who started the sport, you know, um, our whole history of where we as a community have been and where we're going. And that's mm-hmm. the key thing. Cause I think right now we are at a very, very, um, key point where this sport could take off exponentially in terms of, I don't think we're going to have huge, huge, huge numbers of Falconers, but you know, it's always been a four or five or 6,000 at most over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. And so, um, I know a lot of people push against having more Falconers, but you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the belief that for the sport to, to remain healthy, 
with all of the threats that we have, you know, out there. I think we have to be very careful about how we present the sport. And I think we do a pretty good job, Mm -hmm. but we have to make sure that we're bringing in more people to the sport. You know, people who are, you know, ethical, people that are hunters that, um, you know, will respect the beauty and the grace and the history of this sport and, and will become good, you know, um, sponsors for future generations. Cause I think that's key. Yeah. And I think that there's that, that the importance of that, like you said, can't, it can't be lost or forgotten yeah. because I mean, the whole, the whole premise behind this is to actively fly your bird on game. Yep. And if you're not doing that, it's not falconry and, you know, period. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I think to a certain degree, there are, you know, aspects of, of what's happened over the last X amount of years that's, you know, it, it doesn't seem quite as important to some as it should be. Um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I mean, I, I completely agree though, that, you know, that's, that's a big reason why I think things like podcasts and, mm-hmm. and other aspects of media are important. Um, you know, cause we can either choose how that's going to, uh, be chosen to portray us, yep. you know, or we can, you know, take it kind of firm, you know, grasp it firmly with our own hands and kind of, you know, take it forward ourselves yeah. and try and get an initiative on, on how, um, we want to be portrayed and, you know, want to, you know, affect how people see it and, in a in a positive way versus a negative way. And I, I, I totally agree. Um, all that being said, uh, what made you start the school? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, no, knowing, knowing, you know, without going, you know, trying to kind of dance around words a little bit, semantics. As, yeah, semantics <laughs> a little bit, and uh, you know, trying to to maintain a certain degree, I guess, of as much as I hate it, political correctness, as far as you know, like it, it, there's a lot of drama that that goes along with um, with putting yourself in any degree of forefront, and yeah. you know, whether it's it's doing something like like a school or yeah, you know, any, any, any time you put yourself in the, in the public eye can potentially be a downer for other people. Yeah. You know? And, and it's a, and it can be a target too. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we started the school largely because, um, a number of different reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, uh, it is amazing to be able to do what you love and make a living at it. I mean, I'm not, you know, we're not, um, yeah, what's that like? What's that? <laughs> so what's that like? What's that like? Well, yeah, there you go. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, I mean, now mind you, once again, you're not making huge, it's not like we're making millions and millions and millions of dollars, oh, sure. but, yeah. but you have a passion for it. And it's the same thing with abatement. I mean, people, you know, that got into abatement, you know, to be able to fly your birds every single day and, you know, and, and have people appreciate that and pay you for it. Sure. Um, so when we first started the school, the thought process, uh, and I alluded a little bit earlier to it, the thought process was, you know, for years, I was the guy in Ohio as the apprentice director uh, that would go out and do education, um, you know, whether it was for Boy Scout troops or for whatever. And I drive all over the state to do it. And I never took any money for it. You know, I, I think there's some clarity now around, um, you know, you can ask for mileage or reimbursement or yeah, things like that. I was, I was getting ready to throw in that cause legally you can yeah. anyway. Yeah. But. So, um, so the challenge was, was there were pieces and parts of that, what, that I wanted people to understand the, 
the the nature of working with these birds and also understanding um, the unique relationship uh, where there's an excitement, there's a passion that occurs that uh, when a bird flies to somebody's glove. And, you know, to be quite honest, um, I started looking around and, you know, there's so many people that say you can't do things. And I used to be in that little clicker mindset, if you will, of, you know, always looking around going, oh, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. You know, and I'm like, you know what? Um, these people at these resorts can do it. You know, why, why is it that just the people at the resorts can do it? So we started um, looking at um, what it was that allowed them to do it. Uh, we were only the sixth school of falconry. Uh, I don't want to, I don't know if it was the sixth permit. There might've been others that, you know, got permits, but didn't take it. Yeah. See, um, see, when I first started talking to you, I wasn't even aware that there were even that many. Oh, there's, there's about 20 or more now. That's crazy. I've helped. I, I, I hadn't, and yeah. I guess that's just me not there's, paying attention or being naive about how many, yeah. yeah, I, I was shocked that there was, there was even six. Well, we, I, I owe a lot of it to the people that went before us, you know? So the first, um, school of falconry started, uh, I think it was the early nineties at a place called the Equinox resort. Um, and it was the British school of falconry. Uh, John and Emma Ford started it. And then from my understanding, uh, uh, Chris Davis, who later started new England falconry and they're also at the Woodstock, um, and Dwayne Zobrist, who started the Greenbrier, which is kind of like the flagship of falconry programs in the country now, um, and was for many years. Uh, they both worked with the Fords, and then they you know, started their own schools at other resorts. And uh, Dwayne actually um, has three different schools. He has one at the Greenbrier, one at Homestead, and Deanna Curtis, um, who's a great falconer. Um, and w- actually, she was one of the um, first... Uh, falconers whose red tails I ever saw catch a jackrabbit back in 2012 is really cool. Um, and so Deanna actually uh, uh, works with Roger Tucker at the uh, Broadmoor out in Colorado. Um, and so uh, there were other, a couple of other schools. Nancy Cowan uh, ran a freestanding school up in New Hampshire. And then really Kate Martin, uh, Nancy Cowan worked with us a little bit, helped us understand what we needed to do. But Kate Martin out at West Coast Falconry, uh, which is located uh, in Marysville outside of Sacramento, uh, she actually was amazing to us. I mean, Kate is somebody who I really admire because she, you know, the school that she started um, uh, did everything to the most part that we wanted to do. And she did it with a, uh, a grace in terms of how I would see the YouTube videos of her working with people. Um, just, you know, she builds relationship with people and she, she demonstrates with every time that she works with her birds that, you know, it's, it's about relationship and trust. And so, you know, uh, Kate was amazing in helping us get started. Um, and so I think the difference with us was we were the first school that really, uh, kind of blatantly marketed, um, you know, via Facebook largely, uh, what we did. And, um, you know, there were groups that the, the resorts didn't have to market because all the market was in-house. They have a captive audience that comes through that are looking for things to do. Most of those resorts are, you know, uh, pretty posh resorts. So, um, you know, they make a, a good living off of the work that or the people that come through. You know, being a freestanding school, uh, similar to Nancy and to Nancy Cowan and, and, um, and Kate Martin, you know, you have to, uh, you know, really be... Um, innovative in how you approach things. 
And so, you know, Nancy talked to us a little bit about how she marketed in, you know, travel magazines and some other, other different stuff. And, and Kate talked to us about some of the different programming that she designed. And, and you know, um, so we looked at a lot of different things. And we initially started with um, this simulation. So, uh, you know, we, we thought about what is it that allows people to get hands-on with birds, but understand a little bit more about all this information. So the permit that we get from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they give us a list, a long bulleted list of everything we have to cover. And so, you know, sometimes you go to some of the schools and they'll sit there for an hour with a bird on the glove, just going blah, 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 you know, basically running through, almost like they're running through a script. Mm -hmm. um, and people gloss over and, you know, start getting distanced real quick. And so our thought was you have to engage people quickly. And you have to make sure that that information is put in some uh, context of, uh, of either a tactile or an experiential piece where they can see, touch, hear, whatever, and understand whether it's a piece of equipment or whether it's, you know, how you're getting that bird to, you know, make its first hop or things like that. So the simulation that we use um, is one that, um, you know, we've helped about 10 other people start falconry schools mm -hmm. since we got started. Um, and so, you know, when we sit down with them, we talk to them about here's how we approach things. You know, my wife says I'm not a very good business person because I basically tell everybody, you know, what I've learned and how I've been successful. But right. Kate and Nancy helped us. Chris Davis actually has helped us in the last year understand a lot more about the resort side of business. So people have helped us. So I always try to you know, help other people. Um, but the idea is, is, you know, we created this simulation where when people come in, we pretend that they are a brand new falconer, brand new apprentice. And so we say, you know, you've just trapped your first bird. Now you're going to learn the skills that you need to work with that bird. And so, you know, it's uh, when we first started, we used three or four different birds. You know, we had one red tail, a captive red red tail that we kept super fat. And his whole job was to actually just hop to people. And sometimes he was so fat, he didn't want to do it. But even in the bird not hopping, you know, you learn something about that. So, you know, you learn how to read the behavior, do this and that. And so, you know, they, they will fly the bird farther and farther distances on the crance line. And then we'll say, guess what? Now you're ready for your first free flight. And so we go and we'll use a couple of Harris Hawks, put them up in a tree. And we take like a 30, 40 minute walk where the birds are shooting through the tree. And we have people practice the skills that they, that they learn. And uh, and this is, you know, sometimes we'll see some of the YouTube videos of other schools and how they have, you know, uh, that you and I talked about that, about how they'll have, you know, hold, hold the hand up for the bird to fly. And, and we're very specific about making sure that people do it exactly how we taught them. Because as we know, as falconers, there's a very, very, the devil's in the details. And so there's even a nuanced difference of how you hold the bird on the glove, right. whether your hands down, low or high, impacts whether that bird feels safe or not. So Sure. And you're also... Uh want to not have any unnecessary uh, insurance claims yeah. against you. Yeah, we've been business. lucky. We've never had any issues. We we're we are um we are very 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 um how do we say it? Um stringent about uh handling practices. Yeah, I'm so sure. So we always the US Fish and Wildlife says you have to be no more than 3 to 5 feet away from the person which in, you know, a 6 foot social distancing is a little bit more of a challenge. But um, we always have our people there and, and, you know, the people that teach our classes, um, we've had uh, largely for the first two, three, four years, I was the one teaching the classes. But now we have, uh, we started with uh, Amy Mahalik, uh, who taught our classes. She was our first, one of my former apprentices and one of our first, uh, I call them.
call them flight instructors. And, uh, and so most of our classes now are taught by Stephanie Stuckwish, who I mentioned earlier, who's one of my apprentices, uh, probably one of my best apprentices. Don't, don't tell her that cause I don't want her to get a big head, but, um, <laughs> and then, uh, Katie Wickberg, who, uh, is a falconer from Colorado Springs, who actually is going to school not too far from here at Ashland university. And, uh, uh Katie's a great, great, uh, person, uh, very much a go-getter. She actually started the sport at the age of nine when she was volunteering at the U.S. Air Force Academy there in Colorado Springs. And so Sam Dollar actually took her on as an apprentice when she was 12. And um, talk about your first bird. Her first red tail that she flew was a 62-ounce bird, uh, big female red tail, which, I mean, you know, how many of us go? Oh, my God. Um, but uh, she actually started, we met her a couple years ago, and she started only the second uh, falconry club at a university. And so she started teaching classes for us when Stephanie went over to Scotland last year to get her master's and, um, does a great job. And, uh, we support her in all the work that she does with her falconry club at Ashland. She has 60 members in that club. I mean, you know, at a small university, 60 people that actually come out and, you know, learn about the sport of falconry from a fantastic advocate for the sport and Katie. So, we like to actually have people that teach the classes. I uh, always say, you know, an old, you know, fat, bald guy, you know, teaching the classes, <laughs> having young people teach the class sends another message that this sure. is a sport that is not just for old, old guys, you know, it's for, it's for everybody. And that's the key thing for the sport to grow. We have to bring people in from across the gamut. Well, sure. And, and you also want to bring the right people in because like, like you said, you know, if, if someone can be influential enough to have a club of 60 other kids yeah. or 60 other young adults or whatever the case may be at a, a, a college university or wherever, uh, you don't want the wrong message being sent Absolutely. to all 60 of those people because that grows exponentially. Yeah, and that's the so. challenge is, you know, sometimes we have to be careful when we partner with organizations. Um one, we will not partner with an organization that um, will in any way portray a negative uh, image of the sport of falconry or will not, um, you know, have a negative um, uh, viewpoint. When I say sometimes, you know, organization is more than happy to partner with you. But, you know, what are they saying on the, the backside of things? So we've been lucky in that the, the seven rehab organizations that we partner with here in Ohio um, you know, last year, our goal was to give back $4,000 of food, you know, um, fundraising or direct donations. And we ended up hitting 10,000 last year. You know, mind wow. you, this year is going to be a lot less because of COVID. Sure. But, um, you know, the idea is, is that each of those organizations that we partner with, um, you know, uh, is, is incredibly dedicated to this idea of conservation. So we say our tagline or our mission statement is conservation, preservation, education, conservation of the birds of prey that we love and the wild place they live, preservation of the sport of falconry, and both of those through education. Education creates awareness and it provides resources. Mm -hmm. So since we don't do conservation work, we direct that back into supporting these rehab organizations. And it's been a wonderful partnership. You know, we bring them in to do programming with us and then we share contacts. And, you know, the idea is everybody... The challenge is things should, you know, the human mindset is all about adversarial. You know, I can't win if the other person doesn't lose. And that has to change, you know. And so uh, one of our worst, some of our own worst enemies within the sport of falconry are each other. 
you know, and so how do we, yeah, granted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so how is it that we work together instead of me looking over somebody else's shoulder and going, I'm waiting to see him doing something wrong Mm -hmm. is to say, how can I support that person? Or even just say, you know, at a boy, or that's amazing. Even if it's something that I might be jealous because I'm, you know, I'm not in a place where I can fly that type of bird. But, you know, when one of us does something unique or different or whatnot, um, like flying a red shouldered hawk and catching game with it. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> you knew I had to throw yeah. that in there. Yeah. But I mean, the idea is, is by supporting each other, we actually do a much better service to helping this sport grow. You know, I'm never going to live out West and be able to fly a long wing probably. You know, my wife and my family are tied here in Ohio. So what is it that I can do in terms of I can take trips out? I'm never going to be flying you know, a long wing on, uh, or much less a cast of long wings on, on, you know, um, on game birds or yeah, whatever big grouse or whatever. Absolutely. The case yeah. yeah. But you know, when I go out and I get a chance to see, you know, Roger Tucker flying, a uh, a goshawk back in 2012 and seeing that goshawk chase down jackrabbits and seeing him fly a prairie falcon, you know, I mean, those are the types of things that, you know, that's what the NAFA meet is about, you know, that and the social aspect for a lot of people. But being able to see and celebrate what it is that brings us together and ties us together as a as a community. That's the key of of of, you know, we found a family when people find themselves in falconry. For many of us, you know, it's it, it fits. It's like we found a family. But remember, sometimes the most dysfunctional groups of people are your own family. <laughs> well, sure. So. Yeah. So. But um, anyway, so that's, you know, that's a little bit about where I think we're going. Hey everyone, just wanted to pop back in again here during a quick intermission and thank you all again so much for continuing to download and listen to the podcast even during the uh, the downtime and, and this hiatus that's kind of unfortunately been, you know, it is what it is, but um, we really appreciate it and our goal is to be able to at least bring you all one new episode a month over the next couple months here in the short term, at least until we can see how the fall and winter declares itself, so... Our goal is to be able to do more again eventually, but we'll just have to see how it goes. So just wanted to say thank you all again regardless, and we'll jump right back into it. Thanks. We've helped a lot of people get school started, you know, but the idea is, is we try to push this idea of ethical practice uh, in teaching actual skills. Uh, we don't always see those, those, uh, organizations that sprout up doing that same thing. Um, we try to teach this idea of giving back, um, because, you know, technically we have to be a kind of a for-profit to run this because U.S. Fish and Wildlife won't give the permit to an organization, if you will. They give it to individuals, just like, you know, rehab permits go to an individual and not to the rehab center. So, uh, we always have that nonprofit mindset in saying this is how we want to operate. We want to make sure that we're giving back. That's why we have the relationships with the places that we do. You know, the two camps, uh, we have a YMCA camp, we have a shelter house camp that we work out of and a conservation society organization because it gives back. That's why when we teach, we teach from a, a, a place of getting people to understand the sport, but making sure that while we're teaching proper ethics about the sport. We're also making sure that we're not giving people the wrong idea. Mm-hmm. So when people say, can I pet your bird? No. Yeah. Uh, and here's why. Let people understand that, you know, this bird actually 
you know, you're, if you run your hand down his back, you're going to be stripping his waterproofing off. And, you know, um, you know, so help people understand the nuances of why we do what we do and how we do it. And so hopefully we've been able to influence those that we've helped get started to have that same level of, um, of ethical practice and, you know, and that approach. It's cool. I mean, we've, we've done, uh, scout talks and, mm-hmm. and talks at, uh, at, at, um, you know, like park gatherings, stuff like that. Yeah. And it is cool to see the look on people's faces whenever they're seeing the concept of working with a wild animal like that for the yeah. first time. It really is. It's, it's cool. It's, it's, and it's rewarding. I mean, I, I can totally understand why you enjoy doing it so much, but just real quick, what, what's been, well, I guess this is a two part question. What's been your, uh, favorite experience so far, uh, with your personal falconry oh, sure. and what's been your, your favorite experience so far with, with the teaching? I think probably, you know, from a personal standpoint, I can go into, you know, you know, my first kill of this or my first kill of that or whatever. Um, there's always at least a couple of memories yeah. that stick out in every Falconer's yeah. mind as to what, for me, it was, um, uh, I think the excitement that I see every time I have an apprentice that catches their first rabbit or their first squirrel, um, because we, we put so much work into our apprentices, you know, the year before we have them do everything they legally can in terms of learning how to work with the bird, make equipment, you know, a trap, all the different pieces, parts. So there's a lot of regulations around the ubiquitous quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes right now, right, right. pre-apprentice, mm-hmm. but we want them to be, you know, when I got my first bird, I had a fantastic sponsor, but he was three hours away. So when I got my first bird, you know, it was just, it was horrendous. Yeah, you know, tough. I mean, I didn't know how to handle the bird. I was overfeeding it. I was everything. We caught two rabbits that year and I created a monster bird that had to be turned loose. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always said I would never allow my future apprentices to actually have to suffer that way. So that's why we try to get them to handle the bird as much as we can in terms of, you know, the different pieces, parts that are they're legally able to do uh, as a quote unquote, air quotes, pre-apprentice. Hmm. And so when they actually do get their first bird, they literally are much more comfortable working with it. Uh, they're much more comfortable, you know, doing all the different things that they, so everything that they learn should be preparing them for, I think the most important part of the sport of falconry, which is the, the ethical dispatchment, the humane dispatchment of, you know, the, uh, the prey species, you know, because that's the humanity we bring into nature really. And so every time I see them with all the work that they've done, when their bird catches a rabbit and to see them be able to slide in there and, um, you know, in a very, very skilled way, I mean, mind you skilled, you know, they're an apprentice, so, Mm -hmm. you know, you still have to give them tips every now and then, but, you know, to see them be able to, to, to catch their first head of game and to be able to say, welcome, you know, brother or sister, you know, to this, uh, to this amazing community. And so from a personal standpoint, I always love that part of it. Um, with the school, I think, um, we had been approached by the community that I live in, in central Ohio. Uh, and so I've been approached by somebody who was doing the sustainability fair and, you know, they're like, you have to be there. You have to be there because you're the only, you know, animals that we have at this sustainability fair and you're going to be a draw and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't want to do it. I mean, <laughs> I ended up, I got a bird in, 
uh, from Ryan Anthony, actually, uh, we got one of his uh, Harris Hawks that he flew, a bird named Eddie, who's part of our programs. And Eddie came in. I thought this is a great way for me to go and to actually work with him in front of a group, see how he's, you know, is he a nervous bird, whatnot. So I took Eddie over there. I'm just standing there. And this little girl comes running up. And, you know, when we do this, we always get the same questions, you know. Yeah. Is that a golden eagle? How's it, how's it come back? How, do you yeah, get to how come does it come back, back to you? To you? Yeah. Does it talk? I mean, yeah. So, you know, you're just used to answering these questions over and over again. And so this little, she, 12 at the time, 12-year-old girl came running up and she's like, oh my God, that's a Harris's hawk. I'm like, how the heck do you know that? And she's like, that's the only social bird of prey. They actually hunt in family units. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things where you go, this could be 12-year-old me, you right. know, back then. So. Right. You know, I must make sure that you, you know, I nurture and help you become a falconer. So she's talking to me, you know, she runs off and, uh, you know, we get surrounded by other kids and, and she comes back like five minutes later and you could tell she's a little, you know, uh, uh, nervous cause she wants to ask her question. And so the kids are asking the same question. Is that a bald eagle? Is that, is that? And she finally goes, it's a Harris's hawk. You know, it's the only social bird of prey. You know, the young stay with their parents for three to four years. She goes, can I ask my question now? <laughs> and, and it was so funny because she said, I had this burning question, which is more difficult to train, you know, an IS captive bred peregrine falcon or a passage prairie falcon. And I'm like, you're using words that, how did you learn these things? <laughs> And so I found out later that we had done a program for uh, police and fire uh, uh, for the city of Bexley, where they had us come in and we had, you know, the bird able to fly to people. And this had been a year or two before. And, you know, she had had one of our Harris Hawks fly to her. And that was that, that seed that was planted in her mind. And so she basically, you know, wanted to become a falconer. And for two years, you know, she was just reading everything that she could. And so, wow. you know, we actually, uh, and that's what kind of changed my approach towards this. You know, the idea is, is even if I'm uh, not remembered by that kid, mm -hmm. the factor that I was that one falconer that at one time helped plant a seed, that maybe she becomes a falconer, maybe not. Maybe she just becomes, you know, a naturalist you know, uh, that's able to impact, you know, well, kids. Uh, regardless, the important angle is that you weren't the guy that made her negatively uh, absolutely. remember. Absolutely. And, you know, we never, we never want to portray the sport or the birds or our interactions with them in a negative way. But I also choose to say from an appreciative, there's something called appreciative inquiry where, you know, you always look at what is the best that we can do and to strive for that rather than trying to avoid, you know, the, the, the stumps in the middle of the, you know, path. Um, I always try to say, and to the people that I, you know, have worked with us and teach, you know, always look for how can you help people see the, the highest nature of this sport, you know, and that comes down to how do we treat the birds? How do we treat the prey animals when they're, they're caught? Uh, and never, ever, ever apologize for the fact that this is a hunting sport because people will, there will be people that come through that try to get you to, in some ways, either make an excuse for the sport or, um, you know, try to get you to, uh, in some manner, shape, or form, you know, uh, almost like you're apologizing for the sport. And we have yeah. nothing to apologize for. This is our right to practice the sport. Um, we need to make sure that we always keep it at the highest levels of practice possible. And that comes down to bringing people in that are going to be, you know, uh, uh, 
not just advocates for the sport, but also people who are going to be, you know, practicing at a very high level. Sure. No, I totally agree. And so I mean, on that note, and kind of like we, we briefly touched on it a little bit earlier, but uh, how do you think things are going to either grow or potentially digress from here? Because I know for me, even just, you know, seeing how hard it is to continue to do the podcast with, yeah. with people just under these circumstances yeah. and with, you know, everybody's personal lives being shaken up as much as they have been, mine included, you know, me having to all of a sudden travel around for work and, and spend time away from family and, yeah. and not knowing how this is going to affect, you know, even my personal falconry practice. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Um, <laughs> how do you, I mean, I don't even, are we even going to have the NAFA meet this year? I mean, that, that, I mean, there's just, there's so many things from that angle that I think is just interesting. I yeah. know, I know plans are, the last I heard was yes. And, you know, I think there's going to be as many people as possible try not, trying not to let all of this going on disrupt how they're going to do things, but there's only so much you can control. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you, I mean, how do you, how do you think things are going to well, go from the, there? The good news is you already have social distancing in the weathering yard. So that's a key piece. <laughs> um, I don't know about the NAF meet. I've been to one. I, I wish I had been able to go to more, but you know, um, you know, the fall is one of the key times when we're teaching classes, oh, but, and, and not even just the NAF meet, but, but all overall. these state clubs and, and, yeah. you know, and all these different meets that happen through, especially the winter months when, yeah. when the hunting is, is at its peak. And, so I, I think, you know, Indiana is blessed that you guys have a number of different meets each year here in Ohio. We have one meet at the end of the season. Um, so, uh, but we do have a picnic coming up. So, you know, it's one of those things I think we'll continue to, uh, I know like in Ohio, um, you know, I'm sure that the leadership of the state club, which, you know, we have a, a, a really good club here in Ohio, uh, that they're already kind of talking about, you know, making sure that when they come together for the picnic, that people are social distancing and, you know, wearing masks and things like that. But, um, you know, I think it's going to be weird because you're already starting to see, you know, me and uh, the group that I kind of hang out with, we've already started talking about, uh, we started talking about this a while ago, you're going to start seeing the first hit was on breeders. You know, because the breeders had already started their plans for this season. And, you know, you can't necessarily, I mean, you could destroy eggs. But, you know, by the time we got to where, you know, March and April, you already have those birds either sitting eggs or you got them in the incubators. So you're starting to see a lot of those folks actually, you know, having to sell off a lot of birds. And you're finding falconers that, you know, you know, because of a loss of a job or this or that. I mean, you have a lot of people that got that, you know, stimulus check that went out and, uh, and bought birds <laughs> or equipment. Um, I bet Marshall's doing great on their GPSs right now because that at $1,200 was right about the cost of a, of a GPS set, set up. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where you're starting to see those starting to be birds being, you know, sold, um, you know, and uh, kind of put on raptor's nest or, or, you know, raptor's for sale. And the prices are coming down because they're still sitting there. So I think part of the challenge is going to be people are going to, it's going to, um, you know, they're going to practice closer to home. Uh, there's probably not going to be as many trips. Um, and uh, people are looking at the birds that they want to fly for close by. So, you know, I think you're probably going to have a lot less people going to these state meets this year. Um, my hope is that we're going to have um, some semblance of a vaccine by the end of the year, 
um you know yeah i see the look on your face yeah whether or not it's actually the and the the funny thing is is they're already saying you know oh but we're not going to let people who are overweight you know you know take it first you know there because there must be some you know complications i'm like i'm a man of substance you know (laughs) moving on moving on with topics (laughs) moving on with topics you don't like that one eh? you're already starting to see the vein pop out in my forehead dude yeah 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 well (laughs) i worked in healthcare as well so i know i I, I I can understand where you come from but the idea is is that you know for the next year or so um you know people keep talking about a new normal you know and and we'll have to see what it is i mean I, I think that, um, you know, uh, falconry itself will survive. Um, it's the growth of falconry, um, you know, with a lot of people want to become apprentices. I think you're going to find a renewed interest in it. It's been around for thousands yeah. of years through all kinds of things that yep. have been worse than way, yep. way, way worse yep. than than what we've experienced with this, you know. Yeah, and in Ohio, now. I mean, we went from uh, the stats just came out uh we went from 55 falconers in the state in 2005 to we got 110 or 111. And there's probably a couple more, you know, people that uh, are, I know I have one who hasn't taken the test yet in apprentice. So, um, so it'll continue to grow, but um, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. We went down, we had the chance to go down to the Kentucky meet. Were you down at the Kentucky meet this year? This last one? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So, I mean, they did, uh, you know, Clinton Tyler down there, you know, and all the folks that put it on did a really nice job. Uh, for uh, putting on a kind of a regional meet, um, I thought. Is that a regional meet? Um, no, I'm just frowning at the oh, at, at the, the noise the, upstairs. The, yeah, the gotcha. upstairs, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, but you know they put on a really nice meet, um, and so I think we're probably going to see more regional type stuff like that. That's you know, next couple of years where people are staying closer so to I, home. I should correct myself. I was at, I was at last summers. Yeah. Last um, summers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I I didn't even, like. With, with everything going on the traveling and stuff, anything going on, like I know I'm going to get to go back to our Indiana one mm-hmm. August 15th. Like yeah. There's anybody in here in the Midwest who does a program or does a picnic quite like you guys. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'll, hopefully, uh, you know, some of the guys listen to that and, and, you know, thanks for the props for that. Well, uh, not, not that I'm saying the Ohio picnic is not done well. <laughs> Jeff Melsop, we appreciate you having it at your house and it's very, very nice, but Indiana has so many more falconers than we do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, and, and it draws from all the surrounding States. So, um, you know, I was there once in, I think it was 2000, might've been 16 or 15. Uh, and Lauren was speaking, um, and it was just, you know, incredibly well run. It was, it, I think it's at the same place at the uh-huh. Brown at County. The, yeah. Brown County. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's just neat. You know, it's a nice setup. You got it's to meet vibe. a lot of people that I had heard of, yeah. um, you know, and, uh, just a lot of cool birds. So cool. Cool. there was actually a fruge there. I don't know who in cent- in the Midwest was flying a fruge. It was probably Emmons. Yeah. Was Greg, it? Greg Emmons. That was yeah. gorgeous bird. Yeah, he tried, he tried flying one at the time. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, was, that was probably his that he had at the time. Yeah. Beautiful bird. Uh, and the weathering area was gorgeous. I mean, they had tons of different birds that you could see. It's yeah. great. I love those types of events for people who were wanting to get into the sport because when they go, it is um, they can see kind of the camaraderie amongst falconers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, most every picnic that I've ever been to, I've been picnics in, what, four states now? Um, you know, the community has always been, like, you know, welcoming you know, uh, so newbies are, are kind of, uh, unless they say or do something stupid, you know, right. they're welcomed in. 
Um, and plus people can see all the different birds. Their imaginations can take flight, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> their imaginations can take flight. And they were able to see, you know, gosh, I want to fly that bird. I want to fly that bird. Yeah, yeah. Cause you know, people always start out wanting to fly some certain bird. And then, you know, once they get into it, they find either a new respect for red tails or they find, you know, gosh, that guy has, you know, goshawks. I want to fly goshawks or et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Well, I mean, and barring, barring all the, the the stuff that's going on right now yeah. with the pandemic and everything assuming that that didn't happen and assuming you know at some point there is a some degree of normalcy return yeah. well, all, yeah, barring all that um i mean what what else do you would you like to see progress with with our community so it's that's the interesting thing you know um everybody says that we want to have a strong healthy falconry community but when you talk to people one-on-one i mean we all have the same concerns right you know if 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 i'm for 12 years i was the only falconer in central ohio Hmm. so i had my run of all of the fields i knew where everything was and i could you know i didn't worry about somebody else coming into a field etc etc um it was beautiful i loved it um but you know, there came a point where I was like, you know, going out and hunting by myself all the time, you know, I'd, l- I'd love to have other people here. So we started sponsoring people locally. It's and no fun otherwise. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know it is. But, you know, um, you know, I started taking on apprentices in central Ohio. And I, you know, um, oftentimes people were like, you know, oh, you know, well, I found this field. And I was like, oh, yeah, I call it this field. And, and they would get a little put off by it. And I'm like, Listen, I've been doing this for many years, and I you, you you can't crawl into a field that I haven't been in, you know, anywhere within twenty miles of downtown. Yeah. Um. And so what I did was my mindset changed. The idea instead of saying, you know, that's my field, don't go into it, it was to say, let's kind of talk about where the fields are so we can manage them. Mm-hmm. And so we got three or four falconers in Columbus now, besides myself, and you know, we all hunt together. We uh, I call it breaking bread, you know, or. Uh, uh, my sponsor used to calling it uh, eating beast flesh. We either get hamburgers <laughs> or hot dogs or, you know, steak or whatever. Uh, and we get together and break bread and, and you know, uh, we fly in the same fields. We, we keep each other up to speed on, you know, if you're taking this or taking there, you know, the numbers so we don't overtax the fields or the different places. And the community that we created is one that was talking about earlier of hopefully the, the larger falconry community where we support each other rather than become adversarial. Right. That's the key thing. That's the beauty of our community is we're at our best when we're supporting each other and when we're unified. Um, you know, when we, we have, that's why the people talk about the molt, you know, yeah. uh, the behaviors during the molt. Um, uh, and there's probably some science to that, you know, the fact you can't fly your bird. And for many of us, that's our our, our church, if you will, or our therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love to see the falconry community itself uh, grow because, um, you know, reasonably, I don't want us to become the UK where you can buy a Harris Hawk, you know, off the internet without any backing. Or a Golden Eagle. Or a Golden Oh, Now, that's okay. I'm all right with buying a Golden <laughs> Eagle off the internet. In fact, if you know where there is one that I could buy off the internet yeah. and it's legal, I'll go, I'll buy it. Right, right. But but not just being anybody. No, yeah, no, no, no. Once again, this, yeah, this, this is a hunting sport. Right, right. That's the, it keep, right. that, keep coming back to that. Right. This is a hunting sport. Right. This is not a fly the bird around. Um, you know, and, and people that get into the sport, that's one of the things is, is my first apprentice, her name was Maureen and, uh, she had a falconer that lived down the street from her, uh, half mile. Uh, and you know, that falconer didn't take her on. And I was, you know, uh, when she came out with us, you know, I took her out in the field and basically, you know, 
I, I had her do things. She and her husband came to the field. I had her do things in terms of beating brush and, you know, handling, you know, after we, we dispatched the rabbit, you know, uh, you know, doing, you know, cutting it up and doing this and that, that showed to me that she had no problem with those different pieces, parts of the sport. Sure. Yeah. Because that's a key thing is oftentimes, you know, people go, oh, they're not a hunter or whatnot. Yeah. So I talked to this other falconer after I agreed to take uh, Maureen on and I asked, I said, why didn't you you know, take this person on. And he said, well, she's a girl. She's not going to hunt. And I said, that's kind of funny. You would say that Ouch. because <laughs> I, well, and, I mean, mind you, this was back in 2000 and, you know, late two thousands when there were not as many women as we have in the sport today, which is, you know, once again, um, we need to have a broader gamut of people in this sport, you know, coming from every single background. Um, and, but yeah, yeah. Ouch. Yeah. And the thing is, is he never took the opportunity to get to know Maureen because what he would have realized was she actually used to work for a bird abatement um, company that worked at the Toronto airport because she's uh, from Canada. Uh, so she had flown great horned owls and worked with eagles and worked with all these different birds. Uh, so she had this background, but he never took the time to get yeah. to know her. Can't always judge a book by its cover. You can't. But... And she became one of my best apprentices. I mean, she was, Stephanie reminds me a lot of her and the drive that they have as hunters, you know, so you don't have to be a hunter to start but you have to be open to doing the things that helps that bird be successful. I wasn't a hunter to start. Neither was I. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, I think, uh, believe it or not, we're actually a little over an hour already. Great. So. And I, I'll real quick too, um, for anyone that wants to come, as I mentioned before, uh, I know our Indiana meet, um, our summer picnic that we have every year is, is it's in Brown County, um, you know, park and, um, you know, close to Bloomington. Um, it's uh, August 15th. Um, more the merrier come hang out and you said they could find the uh, the dates for yeah. for your picnic on uh so make sure you type in ohio falconry association ohio falconry is our site mm-hmm. uh on facebook but they're ohio falconry association right. and uh as far as your website and you, you want to go ahead and plug yours sure. as well um so our website is ohioschoolfalconry.com um and uh, I always put that plug out there. Whenever we teach a class, make sure you support your local rehabbers, raptor rehabbers, because they're doing the hard work. Uh, we're just, you know, we're just here to uh, teach about the sport. They're the ones that actually are taking care of our wild populations of raptors. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming up, and uh, we'll go. Uh, we'll go hang out. Sounds so, great. All right. Thanks awesome, so much. Man. Thanks. Bye.